Morning, everyone. The reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 16, from verse 1 to 24, and you can find that on page 1155. Now about the collection for Lord, the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give you letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brothers Apollos, I strongly urge him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus and Archaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refresh my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila, Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write the greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. As Bruce has said, today is the day, right? We've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians all year, and this morning we come to the end, the very final chapter in this long and epic letter. And if I'm, if I'm honest with you, and you might feel this way 
as well. When you come to the end of Paul's letters, sometimes it's all, bring my cloak, or say hi to Nympha, or make sure you read my letter to the guys next door. You know, kind of mundane, personal kind of stuff. And I think it's often tempting to, to read the end of Paul's letters as if they're like the end piece on a loaf of bread. You know what I'm talking about? Those bits of bread that are always left in the bag at the end. And no one wants to make a sandwich with the end piece, do they? <laughs> you know what? This morning, we're going to make a sandwich with the end piece. And that's okay. Because when it comes to the Word of God, there's no such thing as leftovers, is there? So let's pray now that God might nourish us this morning as we feed together on His Word. Let's pray. Father God, Your Word is good, every part of Your Word, and we receive it gladly from You today. Fill us with Your Spirit now that we may have eyes to see and ears to hear this good and perfect Word. Amen. I don't know about you, but I find moments of global solidarity to be quite stirring. You know what I'm talking about, right? Those moments when humanity kind of bands together in our partnership as humans. The most recent example I can think of was in the aftermath of those attacks in Paris last month. Tragic, terrible. And it was followed by really quite stirring solidarity and support and encouragement that really kind of captured the entire world for a moment. It was remarkable. You had dozens of world leaders offering their condolences and condemning what had happened. You might have seen the Je suis Paris slogan that went about, I am Paris, people declared boldly even though I'd imagine lots of them had never even been to Paris, let alone known someone who was there during the attacks. Across Facebook, people changed their profile pictures to resemble the French flag. You probably would have seen the famous landmarks, including our very own opera house, bathed in red, white and blue. The band U2 showed their solidarity with uh, the Eagles of Death Metal, who were the band that were playing in the uh, concert hall, Battleland Concert Hall, the night 89 people lost their lives there. Or you might have seen the guy on the news who carted his piano all the way from Germany just to, to sit outside the concert hall and play John Lennon's Imagine in the days that followed. John Lennon's classic song is a bit of a catch cry, isn't it, during these moments Imagine all the people living life in peace, he sings. The world will be as one, a brotherhood of man, sharing all the world. It's a great song, painting for us a perfect picture of a united world. Peace, life, plenty. A picture of the place that our world longs for. And we sing that song almost as if it's like a prayer as we hope for the world to be different than as it currently is. It's a stirring thing when humanity comes together like that, when we remember that we're actually connected, all of us, and when one of us hurts, all of us hurts. And it's a similar kind of solidarity that I think consumes Paul in this final part of his letter to the Corinthian church. 
It's a gear shift, really, the final one we see take place. And if you've been with us this year, you'll remember that a lot of the time Paul's dealing with internal strife, trying to put out fires. We've got divisions and factions. We've got sexual immorality. We've got public gatherings that have become hijacked by people just living selfish lives. And then, just over the past three weeks, we've, we've been reminded, haven't we, as part of this series, rise, reminded of the certainty of Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection as well. And the question before us today is, how is Paul going to end a letter like this, a letter that's talked of such controversy and problems? You know, how do you, how do you finish a letter to a church like that? In this last chapter, Paul switches the focus from internal stuff with a call for the Corinthians to look outwards, to look outwards at their brothers and sisters of the faith, to their partners in the resurrection outside the Corinthian church. This final chapter is a new direction, but as we'll see, it's still grounded in exactly the same thing that everything else in this letter has been grounded in love. Chapter 16 opens with a financial appeal. Have a look with me in the Bibles open in front of you. Paul calls it the collection for the Lord's people. Kind of vague, right? Which obviously means that they, they knew what he was talking about. And if we read in other places like Acts and in Romans, we see that what Paul's talking about here is a collection that he's making for the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church, which was the epicenter of the faith, the place where all the other churches had sprung from, and it was also the epicenter of persecution. So the church at this time was going through difficulty, and Paul, therefore, was engaged in trying to rally support, trying to get other churches on board, encouraging churches across the Christian world. You know, perhaps it was the first ever Christian fundraiser. Imagine Paul running a trivia night. Paul's instructions here about the collection, they're pragmatic, right? He says, set the money aside a little, a bit each week, ahead of time, according to your income, and then send it yourselves to Jerusalem. And it's useful advice, if we think about it. Be planned, be thoughtful, be intentional with when we give. But you look past the pragmatism for a moment, you should really also see that there's a beauty, a real beauty, to this particular gesture. I mean, donating money is a pretty common thing these days, right? You just have to walk outside along the Corso and you're hit up by half a dozen people asking for you to donate money to their particular cause. And we can transfer money just with a click of a button these days, can't we? It's easy. Or, you know, pay pass means all you have to do is wave your wallet in a particular direction and bang, the money's transferred. It's crazy. But back then, you actually had to physically carry the money that you wanted to donate to the place where you wanted to donate it to. It would have been a mission, wouldn't it? And Jerusalem is roughly 2,000 kilometers from Corinth by the coast. Google Maps estimated that it would take 357 hours to walk this route, or 14 days. But that's considering that you wouldn't stop the whole time, 
and also that you had access to a fast ferry, which, of course, the Corinthians didn't. So it would have taken them more like two months to travel the distance. One way, just to drop off your donation. And these are people that they don't even know. A Gentile church giving to a Jewish church. How remarkable. Paul is calling the Corinthians to Christian solidarity. That's what's going on here. It was to be a practical demonstration, right, of their partnership with each other. A perfect example, really, of what Paul had been talking about back in chapter 12, when he said the church is many parts but one body. And when one part suffers, the whole body suffers. Jerusalem was in pain. So the church in Corinth, the church in Asia, in Galatia, in Macedonia, they're called to Jerusalem's aid to support their partners in the resurrection. Isn't it remarkable that that kind of thing was happening so early in the life of the church? It tells us that it was really a part of the very fabric of what it meant to call yourself a Christian, to call yourself a member of God's family. That's great. Great. Paul continues on and he moves from the level of church and money to look at individuals and relationships. And really, he gives us a bit of a showcase of people here, including Paul himself in verses 5 to 9. Then he moves on to look at Timothy in verses 10 to 11, Apollos in verse 12, the household of Stephanus in verses 15 to 18, and finally, briefly, Aquila and Priscilla in verse 19. And in their own way, all these people are engaged in the work of the Lord. And as Paul unveils each one of them to us, he's commending these partnerships to the Corinthians. Now for Paul, it involves hospitality. Take a look at verse 6. Paul says he's planning on swinging past the Corinthians on his way back to Jerusalem. And he might even stay the winter, he says. How nice. And if he does, it's going to mean Paul really will depend on Corinthian hospitality in order to help him on his journey. It's no small thing to be welcomed into someone's home, is it? It it was so important back then to be hospitable, and it's still important today. And you know, it doesn't take that much to do, does it? If you've got the room, shelter, some food, but, you know, for the person who receives that hospitality, it's, it's a real powerful gesture, isn't it? Welcoming people into our homes is a really great way of laboring for the Lord and of partnering with His people. I know there's lots of people here who do just that. When Paul comes to Timothy and then to Apollos, we see a little bit of a different kind of partnership operating here in verses 10 to 11, he urges urges the Corinthians to be good to Timothy when he arrives. And we know from elsewhere that Timothy is young, and so he's a little bit timid. And we know through working in the book of 1 Corinthians that the Corinthians are anything but timid. They're bold and they're brash. So it's kind of understandable, right, that that Paul would be worried. How are they going to receive Timothy when he turns up? So he says to them, He urges them to partner with Timothy in peace. Don't give him a hard time 
Accept him. Welcome him. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am, Paul says. Just as I am. Is there not any higher commendation you could get from Paul? You know, treat him as you would me, he says. And in that appeal, we also see a partnership between Paul and Timothy, don't we? The old, wise apostle with the young apprentice. It's somewhat similar to the partnership Paul shares with Apollos in verse 12. If that name Apollos rings a bell, it should, because Apollos was mentioned at the start of 1 Corinthians, part of the factionalism and rivalry and division that had overtaken the church. Some were following Paul, some were following Peter, others were following Apollos, and it was causing tension. And of course, Apollos, out of all of them, was the gun preacher. He was persuasive and charismatic, and in his ministry in Corinth, he had developed quite a following. It almost become a bit like a, like a personality cult. And so it's interesting, here in verse 12, we see that Apollos was just straight up unwilling to come back to Corinth. He didn't want to go, even with Paul's urging, because you see, Apollos wasn't interested in being adored. He didn't want to take any further part in causing division. He was happy to remain in Ephesus, out of the Corinthian limelight. And even though the Corinthians had pitted Paul and Apollos against each other, we can see here that there is no rivalry at all between the two men. Paul is happy for Apollos to return, and Apollos is happy to not do so. And they're so together on this decision that Apollos is, even lets Paul speak for him on the matter, which is what happens here. Solidarity, partnership, characterized by Apollos' humility. Pride often gets in the way of our partnerships, doesn't it? You ever notice that? Like it's hard to work with someone, hard to work together equally when, when you feel like you're better than someone else, you're above them, or when they think that they're more deserving than you are, or more capable than you are. It doesn't work. Pride erodes our partnerships, doesn't it? There is no place for pride in the fellowship of believers. The last person Paul draws our attention to in particular is a guy called Stephanus. And we don't know much more about him than what we read here because he's got no official standing. Paul doesn't give him a title or special status. And yet he's mentioned here by Paul. Why? Because of his devotion to the Lord, serving God's people. Stephanus is the kind of guy who sees a need, sees a way that he can be of assistance and he just gets to it. Not out of selfish ambition, but Serving out of love, that's Stephanus, whatever the task may be. The well-known nurse during the Crimean War, Florence Nightingale, I'm sure you've probably heard of her, she was taking a group of recruited nurses to the battlefield and as they arrived, one of the nurses who was with her was rushing around, where are they, where are the, the injured, I must get to them, I must assist them, they need my help, where are they? full of eagerness. Nightingale was said to turn around and rather sharply say, 
the strongest are needed at the wash tub, which deflated this nurse's eagerness immediately. Well, Stephanus was the guy at the wash tub, rolled up his sleeves behind the front lines, getting on with whatever needed to be done. And there are plenty of people like that here in our church, aren't there? There are a couple that probably come to your mind as to mine. And that's the great thing about the celebration dinner that we do every year, right? Where we get a chance to, to celebrate and to thank the Stephanuses amongst us. Those who just get stuck in, get on with it, content to work at the wash tub. Submit to such people, Paul says, and everyone who serves in such a way. Because you see, partnership with God's people calls us to serve, to serve each other, even if you don't get the recognition that you deserve. Is that something you're prepared to do? Paul finishes this section by sharing greetings from the churches in Asia. Greetings from a key Christian couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and also from the church in Ephesus, where Paul is writing this letter. Just take a moment. Have you noticed what's happened in just 20 verses? Paul's gone from talking about the church in Jerusalem that needs financial support. He's talked about the churches in Galatia who are hearing the call and coming to Jerusalem's aid. He's talked about the churches in Asia who've been giving their greetings. He's talked about people like himself, Paul, a Pharisee from Tarsus, Timothy, a Gentile from Lystra, Apollos, who was an orator, who was an Alexandrian. He's talked about Aquila and Priscilla, who were tent makers from Pontus up in the north, and Stephanus, who was from the region of Archaea. All of them were serving currently the church in Ephesus. And of course, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. I feel a bit like a geography teacher. But you, you get the sense, don't you, of the partnership that's on display here in this final chapter. A solidarity that spans cultural and linguistic boundaries, that traverses seas and crosses borders, men and women, Jew and Greek, all kinds of different occupations and backgrounds. Is this not a breathtaking picture of the scale and the scope of God's operation in our world? Breathtaking. And this was virtually the entire Christian world at this point, right? And Paul, in the space of just 20 verses, has swept across it all. Christians, churches, individuals laboring for the Lord, bound together by their faith, hope, and love. In this final chapter, Paul is imploring the Corinthians to embrace these partnerships. Moments of global solidarity, like we saw in the aftermath of the Paris attacks, they're pretty few and far between, aren't they? And in the end, they they only ever seem to be just that, right? Moments. It doesn't often take long for it to fade. The news stops talking about it. Landmarks return to the natural colour. Profiles on Facebook go back to normal. You know, it's only ever momentary. In the end, our focus, what does it do? It returns back to ourselves and we gaze again 
inside at what's happening right in front of us. This kind of solidarity, it's fleeting and it's also selective, isn't it? On the same day as the Paris attacks, 43 people were killed in Beirut. 200 were wounded after two ISIS suicide bombers detonated themselves in a crowded marketplace. The same day as the Paris attacks, Facebook profiles, landmarks, U2, no. Because it's hard to show solidarity with everyone, isn't it? And though it might give us a warm, fuzzy feeling, which is a nice thing, you know, when we're fighting people who use terror as a weapon, but really, the global partnership we saw after the Paris attacks doesn't actually do a whole lot, does it? In the end, it's pretty ineffectual. Like I heard stories of people in Paris who opened their homes to those who were affected. But aside from that, I don't know anyone who donated money to something or who really did anything that was practically helpful. And it's, you know, it's hard, I admit it. We're on the other side of the world and I'm not trying to say we should have done more. I mean, I didn't even change my Facebook profile. But we get on board these movements for a moment and it can make us feel like we're doing something when we're actually not doing much at all in the end. And it's because the sad reality is that we're all just more comfortable looking after ourselves and and those closest to us, aren't we? It's easier to look inwards, to make sure we've got everything sorted first before we ever think of doing anything else. And that's the reality of it, you know? Like, if I'm truthful, I find it pretty hard to, to look outside to love outwards when I'm worried about my own situation. It's typical the world over. It's true for individuals like you and I, and it's true on a larger scale, like with our governments. For instance, just take a look at what's happened with our foreign aid budget. Fifteen years ago, John Howard pledged to the UN that by 2020, Australia would more than double its foreign aid spending taking it to 0.7% of our gross gross national income. Four years after that promise, it had actually halved rather than doubled. Then when Rudd was elected, he promised that we'd get it back up to 0.5% by this year, by 2015. But through the GOC, we only ever came as high as 0.34%. That's as high as we got because when the new government came to power, the first budget they delivered announced that we'd be slashing foreign aid by $4.5 billion over the next four years. And that means by next year, it'll be at its lowest that it's ever been since World War II. And Australia will slip from 13th to 20th in the world's most generous developed countries. 20th out of 28. Both sides of government have struggled when it comes to the issue of foreign aid because we bow to the pressures, the financial pressures on the home front, right? We need to fix our own problems before we begin helping others, you might hear people say. 
I'm not trying to get political here, just trying to highlight that whether it's on an individual level or a larger scale, we, we find it hard to love outwards. We find it hard to look outside ourselves. And the only times we do feel comfortable seem to be when we've got it all sorted ourselves. And if we're honest, how often is that ever really the case? It's that classic line when you're sitting there listening to the airplane safety instructions. Make sure to secure your own mask before assisting someone else. Seems to be the way of it, doesn't it? Secure the home front before you look abroad. And in the end, we can't do it. Global solidarity the kind of partnership that Paul is calling for from the Corinthians here. We can't do it. Imagine there's no heaven, sings John Lennon. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Lots of people think that's the answer, right? Get rid of God. Get rid of religious faith. Get rid of Jesus. Nope. Nope. That's the, actually it's the exact opposite, right? Lenin got it backwards. You see, that's the only thing that's going to get us there. The only thing. As you'll have seen over the last three weeks, as we've worked our way through Jesus rising from the dead, his death on a cross, and his resurrection on our behalf is the truest, most perfect example we have of loving outside ourselves. God chose solidarity with us, sinful humanity, in the name of partnering with us. What did Jesus do? He humbled himself, bringing us peace. He served us in order that he might welcome us into God's household. His sacrifice not only shows us how to love others above ourselves, but His resurrection from the dead is what enables us to do it. He was raised, and so so too will those who follow Him. Right? Resurrection awaits. Resurrection awaits. You know, if you're going to be raised from the dead, that means your future is assured does it not? Jesus has secured our home front. It's taken care of. And when we embrace that truth, when we let it take root in our lives, you know what? It frees us. It frees us from the toil and the hardship and the struggle and the anxiety about what's going to happen next, you know, or about what you might miss out on. Because the most important home front has been secured already by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so it's because of Him that we love. It's because of Him that we partner with saints across the globe. Jesus shows us the way, and then by the work of the Holy Spirit, He enables us to do likewise. I look at a place like St. Matt's here in Manly. I've only been here a year, but... I can say confidently that we are built on this kind of love, that we as a church do look outwards, whether it's the Nadens in Broken Hill, 
or the bloomers in Austria who we've just recently raised 20 grand to support. You know, we continue to support Anchor RE in its work in local high schools. We've welcomed student ministers here over the years like Paul Seville and Pete Kerr, and we've supported a bunch of Year 13 students. We partner financially and prayerfully with Richard Harvey and his work with Evangelism Explosion and Heal Africa. We support the Fells out in Norfolk Island, the painters in Cambodia. We are engaged in a great number of these kinds of partnerships, and it's something that, that we should celebrate and cherish and pray that God would continue to see these partnerships grow and flourish and multiply. But the thing is, we're a big church. We're a big church. And it's easy for the church to partner in those ways. And there'll still be many of us who don't really get involved. There's likely a bunch of people across our congregations who are in that boat, perhaps even a lot of people. You know, you might have your own partnerships and causes that you support, and that's fantastic. But maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. And so it might take a passage like this one this morning to encourage you to take more of an interest and to finally actually get more involved in something like this. And if that is you this morning, can I encourage you just to try something? Just pick one. Pick one of these partnerships and make it your own personal partnership. Like, for instance, you could pick Broken Hill and the Nadens as your personal partnership and commit to praying for the Living Desert Indigenous Church and then try and be a part of the group, perhaps, that we're planning on sending next year. Or you might like to support the Fells in Norfolk Island and you could join Bruce and whoever else he takes is sending a team to help paint the rectory. That's a different way of partnering, isn't it? Or take Kieran Deegan out for a coffee and have him tell you about what it's like to contend for the gospel at Bally Boys. Or why not encourage your small group next year just to adopt one of our mission partners like the painters or the bloomers and you as a group could pray for them each week, have regular updates, Skype with them from time to time, write them letters, send their children Christmas presents. I'm told missionaries love that getting presents from across the world from people you don't even know. How hard would that be to do? And how good would that be to do? Just try choosing one partnership. Make it your own and try doing something before the end of the year. An email, a prayer, just to get the ball rolling. Because the reality is there's tons of ways for us to involve ourselves in all these kinds of partnerships and many, many more. And it's significant that we do. It's significant that we do because loving outwardly is so vitally important. It really is. And that's the note that Paul decides to end his letter on. Focusing on love, reminding us of how important it is to be people that love. If anyone does not love the Lord, he says in verse 22, let that person be cursed. That's how important it is. And you see, that's been the problem with the Corinthians this whole time. They've lacked love. 
And as we've seen across the series, when you lack love, things get real ugly real quick. The church of Corinth is us. It's us in those moments when we, too, lose touch with love. So Paul's closing words to them are Paul's closing words to us. And as we finish this series together today, as we get ready for next year, the year draws to a close, may we all heed these words, these parting words from Paul. Be on your guard, he says. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous, be strong, and do everything in love. Lord, we thank you for this end piece of your word. We ask that it might have nourished us today, that we might be stirred by your word to love outwardly, to partner with all those whom we share in the resurrection hope. And we thank you, God, for blessing our church in so many numerous ways. May we be a blessing and a light to manly and beyond. Amen.